Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry podcast. And today, our guest is a gentleman named Wakas El-Sadiq. He is the CEO and founder of a company called Biotricity. And you'll find that he's got a nice mix of deep dive technology, uh, Intel, AMD, uh, IBM, and then sort of saw a space, saw an opportunity moving into the healthcare world. And so built a company and did some amazingly smart things. During the conversation, we'll talk about Biotricity, how it came to be, some of the devices that they use for cardiac monitoring, um, the difference between passive and active, some of the things that they're doing to save lives, uh, in particular, the future of AI and how it plays in these, what the impact of the pandemic was, and then some really fun and interesting answers on his One Wish, as well as his Deserted Island album. So Welcome you to uh, listen in, and hopefully you enjoy the show. And with that, uh, we'll get right into it. All right, Wakas, I'm excited to be here. We're sitting here in San Francisco. You live uh, down on the peninsula. I'm out in the East Bay, but we're able to meet in the city. And I'm excited to you know learn a little more about you and let our listeners learn more about you. I always love to find out sort of the backstory, right? The origin story. And you have an interesting one, not that sort of surprising, given the fact that you are really working at a health tech company, but you did start your days early in tech and hardcore tech and IBM, AMD, Intel. Let's talk a little bit about sort of what got you there and then what ultimately led you down the healthcare path. Absolutely. And it's great to be here and I uh, always love to visit the city. So it's great to see you in person. Um, talking a little bit about my background, you know, like you said, I was very hardcore tech, of course. But really, it was my graduate work. So what I had done in my grad school was uh, I focused on sensor networks. So I'm kind of this weird uh, engineer who's an expert in wireless and sensor technology, specifically in remotely monitoring environments. Um, now, one of the applications was healthcare, and I always thought that was interesting, but it wasn't the application that I was studying. And so I focused on that. And then, of course, my background specifically was in architectural and cloud computing and, and processor. So I went really hardcore tech. And so now, you know, you look at biotricity, we're kind of that intersection of cloud and sensors, of course, you know, focused on the, on, on the healthcare market. Well, that makes sense. I guess let's get into that. What got you interested? And then I also want to talk a little bit about the, I think you were an advisor sort of in the investment space. That's always helpful knowing you want to do something you're passionate about. You want to do something that solves a problem, but kind of knowing what the journey is and how you get funded and how you should be thinking about that is also not insignificant. But Let's take that bridge from the early days of hardcore tech, logical fit into healthcare, but what was the spark that like one day you woke up and said, you know what, I want to found a company, you know, called Biotricity. And let's talk a little bit about why Biotricity and maybe even a little bit about where the name came from. Absolutely. So what happened was when I was looking at this uh, investment advisory work and I was looking at investments specifically in digital health, uh, mobile health, mobile, uh, mobile applications and wireless so it's kind of that intersection of this wireless connected space. And some of the applications I was looking at, it kind of reminded me 
of the idea of sensors and, and where I had really got my uh, interest in when I did my graduate research. And finally, I looked at some of the ideas that, was, that were getting funded, and I, and I thought to myself that I've got ideas myself, and I really think that the future, because when you're an investment advisor, it's not just about looking at the investment. You have to understand the market. You have to see where's the market going, where are the dynamics going. And so when I was analyzing those, I was getting an understanding of where the market was heading. And so at that point, kind of the light bulb went off and it said, look, this concept that I've got is, is better than some of these other concepts that are getting funded. And it's lined up with where the future of, uh, of, of tech is going and the future of healthcare at this intersection of tech and health. And so then that all makes sense. Let's tell us how did that lead to the name Biotricity? I, I can sort of do the math on that, but you know, what was the impetus? Was it you? Was it a group? Uh, you know, what was the inspiration there? That was actually me. So it was the idea of biology and electricity, hence Biotricity. So that's, uh, that was really kind of birthed out of me. The logo, of course, we work with the design firm and, and it, you know, people think of it as a flower. It's, you know, the idea of birth and life and all of that. So let's get into a little bit about what Biotricity does and specifically uh, maybe an overview of what you do for both cardiologists and patients. I always love it. We do some of the same work at Real Chemistry where, you know, our clients are a lot of the life sciences companies, med device, digital health, but we're here to serve patients. And a lot of the best way you can do that is to work through the HCPs and making sure you understand them. So let's talk a little bit about what Biotricity does and how you work with both patients and uh, HCPs. Absolutely. So when we think about the patient, I think everything begins with the patient, like you kind of said, because the patient is a big integral part of this. And what we found was when we looked at the marketplace was, so 70 cents of every dollar spent on chronic conditions and heart disease is the number one killer out of that. And so when we look at this patient, we said, well, this is, there's an unmet need there. And there's a problem here because you've got a problem that's intermittent and asymptomatic primarily. So it's very hard to find you've got all of the care and all the tools that are being used uh, disjointed. And so what I mean by that is like, you've got the cardiac diagnostic products companies doing that. Then you've got disease management. That's another company. Then you've got, uh, you know, uh, performance improvement and rehabilitation. That's another company. So all this data is spread across. So really the patient is chronic. They're going to live with this condition, but their journey through technology and their, and what they're consuming is different at each stage. And so we said, okay, how do we build something, because we know that the future of healthcare is going to be consumed in the person's home, especially for chronic patients, because most of the time they're living with this. How do we address this for their entire cardiac journey? So that's kind of the, the thought uh, exercise that we did. And we said, well, where does this begin? It becomes in, begins in diagnostics. So our core focus in our, in our first product was a smart diagnostic monitor. So this asymptomatic issue, something's happening three o'clock in the morning. You may or may not ha be having a heart attack. You're sleeping. You don't know can we get you to the hospital? We solve that problem. So creating smart diagnostics as opposed to passive diagnostics. And then we said, okay, well, what happens after you get diagnosed? Well, now we got to help you manage that condition. And that's where the, the rest of the product portfolio came out. So that's kind of what we are doing for the patient. For the physician side, we said, well, physicians only want to look at data if it's clinically relevant. So if you're going to give them Fitbit data or your weight information, yes, it's meaningful, but only if it lines up with what they're trying to do from a disease perspective. So Fitbit data is very useful if you put somebody on and you said, hey, you need to take 5,000 steps because I need you to lose weight and I need you to exercise. Okay, that all makes sense, but how do you line that up and present that in a way where it's not noise for the physician? And at the end of the day, it lines up with the clinical pathway because uh, the clinical pathway is what drives outcomes, but it also drives reimbursement and revenue. 
And so if you're going to overload the physician and you got too many patients, not enough cardiologists, and it's going to cost them more money and time, and there's no reimbursement, again, that breaks. So we really designed everything to line up with how the payers are paying and how this lines up with clinical outcomes and really supports the physician in their practice from a reimbursement perspective. Well, you touched on something that I was going to get to later, but I figure I might as well bring it up now, which is this whole real world evidence concept, right? And I think people at their simplest understand it as like Fitbit data. There's a lot more exhaust data, aura rings, et cetera. You are getting into a space that's actually a much deeper dive and one would think would add a tremendous amount of value, especially for cardiologists and the the cardio space. You know, what does that look like in terms of are you helping contribute some of this exhaust data from your monitoring to clinical trials for therapies or treatments for people that have cardio issues? No, absolutely. So we're doing all, you know, all of that. So we just recently got an NIH grant to really look at, okay, how can we take our cardiac data and apply it in uh, chronic kidney disease, for example, because CKD patients are 63% of them die of heart issues, not of kidney issues. So we have this data set on kidney patients and cardiac diagnostics within them. Is there something else that we can find out? Can we predict something? So we're looking at prediction capabilities. We're looking at notifications. We're looking at that data set also from a perspective of, okay, can we do, like you said, clinical development on the clinical trial side of things? For example, some drugs have adverse events on cardiac patients. Can we support that by saying, okay, is there something that is changing in that cardiac uh, electrical rhythm that is beneficial, not beneficial? What is that level of impact? Can we quantify it? So we're doing a lot of that stuff and trying to use that data set, not only for looking at other disease modalities or comorbidities, as they, as they call them, for uh, conditions that are also at risk for cardiac to see if we can do something specific to them, also in the, in the clinical side, but then also in the predictive uh, piece. Because one of the things that I said was, we do smart diagnostics. So there are about 87,000 people today that avoided a heart attack or stroke because of our product. That's amazing. Congratulations. I mean, and kudos to you for actually doing good and saving lives. No, thank you. And, and I, it's a powerful thing to say, right? And so, you know, four o'clock in the morning, something happens, you can actually get this patient into the hospital, you can alert them, and they know exactly what's happening. And so how do we take that to the next level by saying, okay, well, I got an alert, and I saw that the trend changing, can I know before that trend even occurs, right? And what can we use from a machine learning and a deep data perspective to, to get even more and more predictive. Well, I love that. And I think this leads into our next question, which is you have some very specific devices with names. And there's one that I want to call out in particular, because you get some amazing uh, recognition for this. The question really is there are a lot of different wearable monitoring devices in the market. We just talked about Aura, Fitbit. This obviously is a much deeper dive and, and much more clinical. BioHeart is one of these. Let's talk about what makes it stand out, and especially on the heels of being named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of 2022. So again, kudos for that. That's a huge deal. Some of the younger folks listening in may not really understand the importance of Time, but for old guys like me growing up, Time was one of those top five magazines that everyone knew, everyone wanted to know who was going to be the Time person of the year. So uh, long way of saying, tell us a little bit more about BioHeart and why this stands out as a device. Yeah, BioHeart is uh, it's actually a very special product. It's something that I was very uh, instrumental. I mean, it was, it was one that I really focused on creating and, and pushed. So I think it's also not understood as well in the marketplace, and we're, of course, trying to fix that. But so when you look at cardiac patients, right, we talked about intermittent and asymptomatic, right? So it's very hard to figure 
what's going on with them. So what that means is, what is a 30-second ECG going to do on your Apple Watch? Pretty much nothing. And the reason is because these issues, you know, I, I think the percentage is something about 40 to 60% of these issues are happening while you're sleeping. So are you, you're going to wake up in, in the middle of the night to take a 30-second ECG? And by the way, if it's asymptomatic, you're not even going to notice it. So for cardiac issues, you need long-term monitoring. And to give you a, a stat on that, 24 hours of a Holter product, which is to diagnose. So a doctor wants a minimum of 24 hours. So 30 seconds, 24 hours to diagnose a patient for a cardiac issue. So your chance of finding that issue is about 10%. When you get to seven days, the chance is about 60%. So you need long-term monitoring. And so really, uh, we saw this change in diabetes, right, where you had a glucometer and then it went to CGM. So BioHeart is a continuous heart rhythm monitor. So if you wear it, it is recording forever. So as long as you're wearing it, it's got all of that data. And then you can go back in time and check that out. So it's really a paradigm shift. So we went from you know, nothing in terms of a patient. So you get diagnosed with a cardiac issue. What does a patient have to manage them? They don't have anything. For, for heart issues, there's, there's pretty much nothing. There's a 30-second ECG that you can collect. So we went from basically nothing to BioHeart, which is a continuous heart rhythm monitor. So we kind of leapfrogged that idea of having a glucometer because a glucometer is great for diabetics. It's a, a point-in-time check, but it's not really functional for a patient with heart issues. And so some of the evidence that we've gotten it's pretty incredible. I mean, we've gotten people that are saying that, you know, my doctor was telling me to do this stuff. Now I can actually see this information. One person actually uh, gave us a testimonial saying that I've become more mindful of the healthy choices and the impact of those choices that I make. And people around me are recognizing this. So because he saw what was happening to his body from a heart rhythm perspective after he ate something, that actually made him change what he was doing because you could actually quantify so that's actually pretty powerful. Well, I love that. And I mean, it makes sense. It's why apps like Weight Watchers or WW and Noom work, right? As people are now conscious of what they're putting into their body, that would make sense that making them more aware of what the impact of things like eating does to them, right? Or exercise. I have a two-part follow-up question that was not here, although one of your colleagues actually suggested something like it. You mentioned the payers, right? So you've worked knowing like what will get paid for. And I think most people that work in the healthcare system realize that you can have the best drug, the best device, best therapy, if you can't get funding for it, meaning you can't get the payers to pay for it or you know whoever the, the paying body, then it's somewhat of a moot point. So I'm assuming you know this BioHeart, you've worked with the payers to make sure that they can reimburse. And then the other is, how invasive is it? Like my poor wife has an APAP machine, right? Because she has sleep apnea. It's a little bit like she's wearing a snorkel at night, but you know she's gotten used to it. It's comfortable, it's quiet. She also has a sensor that gives her all the sleep data after the fact. So the juice is worth the squeeze. So I'm just wondering, because you're talking about wearing this for a duration that could be potentially invasive or uncomfortable, right, if, if you haven't done your due diligence there. No, both great questions. So yes, we have worked with uh, pairs, and really the idea was uh, looking at whether or not this information long-term can actually uh, lead to better outcomes, right? And so we've seen examples of patients that were actually had an interventional procedure. They were ablated. They went on vacation. They felt something. And they were happen to be wearing their BioHeart. And the doctor's like, okay, I'm going to adjust your medication remotely, go to the prescription and, and, and check it. So there is that, that evidence-based uh, piece, of, which is really valuable. And then in terms of wearability, so I cannot tell you how many rashes I have gotten while testing this product. I mean, we went through so many different types of skin-sensitive uh, straps and things like that. But it's a non-invasive product. And you wear it and you forget it. I'm wearing one right now. 
And there are people that have worn it for months. There are people that wear it every now and then whenever they feel it. There are people that wear it. We've gotten testimonies. People wear it for an hour every time before they go to sleep. There are people that wear it just while they sleep. So we really focus on the wearability of it. And once you kind of get used to it, you you kind of forget about it. Um, it's a strap that goes across your chest. And people think about, you know, why the chest also, why do you have to go? And the, and the reality is that to get your electrical signal of your heart, you actually have to go across the heart. So that's the reason why when you're getting an ECG off of a watch or one of those devices, you have to actually hold it with both your both your hands because you have to go across the heart. Is it anything, I know this is a sort of weird follow-up question, but anyone that rides a Peloton, and if you've ever done that and the monitor that they have, is it something like that? Maybe a little bit more technical, I'm guessing? Yeah, a significantly more sophisticated version of what the Peloton device is. So the Peloton device is something that is collecting kind of like your peak. So it's the equivalent of putting your fingers on your carotid and counting your pulse rate. The quality of data that we're collecting is for diagnostic level, right? So we're coming from that uh, world of diagnosing patients. So the doctor's going to decide to cut you open based on what our diagnostic device says. So the quality of the data that we're collecting is, is at that level. So I have one other that I was originally going to put in here and I didn't, but now that we're keeping on time, so kudos to you for being very precise. Um, the pandemic, I'm assuming this had a positive effect on your company, given the fact that remote became the de facto and a lot of people knew that they couldn't get in to see their doctors. So I'm assuming both patients and doctors appreciated the fact that you could do remote monitoring with this. Yeah, the pandemic was an interesting time, right? So I would say it had a, both a positive and a negative impact, right? Positive impact in the sense that awareness, need, the importance of smart monitoring, right? As opposed to passive monitoring became a paradigm shift and, a, and a, a easier to adopt. The negative piece was we launched our product in April of 2019. And with Salesforce that has to go out and meet, you can imagine in-person meetings, physicians and, and hospitals not wanting anybody to come in and out of the facilities because of that. That was challenging, but yes, the awareness and the adoption for sure. The negative part was that I think we would have had a much larger footprint um, and, and that certainly slowed us down a little bit. Yeah, that's good point and not dissimilar from the problems. A lot of our clients that were not focused on, you know, vaccines for COVID or things like Paxlovid were solving for. So, um, but it does sound like you've overcome that. And I think in some ways, especially since you have so many no CM doctors now and you have to have this virtual sales force, you know, at the very least you get a little bit of a head start and you get a chance to say, okay, how does this work in this new world order, right? And then fortunately you did have a product that's like, I can actually help you if you will make the time to to see this. So Glad that that's working out. I want to take a second to sort of take a step back and look at the broader picture, right? That's what's happening in this space. Um, how is AI? I think we all hear about AI every single day. What's going on and how is AI impacting the space that you play in? Great question. So, you know, there's a lot of discussion around AI. And of course, with ChatGPT, and I, and I wrote something for the CIO magazine on, you know, AI and, and how it's impacting. And so I really like to break AI down, right? So what is the use case, right? We have to think about applied AI. Like what is the end use case? And, and I think that helps us understand a little bit better. So if we think AI and healthcare, where can it really help? So there's that generic chat component, right? And so what we're talking about there is I'm having a problem with my product. Like you mentioned your wife with the- uh, APAP machine. Yeah. yeah, APAP machine. So she's having an issue there. Can there be an interactive AI bot that can help her support and, and deal with some of those issues? So absolutely- that's easy. FDA doesn't really care about that. You're not going to get into a regulatory problem, but it's, it's very beneficial for, for a patient. 
Then there's the deep data machine learning piece, which we do a lot of, right? And so this is saying, okay, you've got all of this information. Can you get better in prediction? Can you get better in notifications? Can you alert somebody? So this is where FDA will pay attention because what are you alerting? Are you alerting something that can actually make a clinical decision? Or are you alerting as a, hey, you should be aware of this, right? And depending on where you're moving that needle, you know, FDA is going to come in uh, stronger or, or, or less strong. But that's another area of AI, and that's really around the deep data and machine learning. The third piece of AI is really about, okay, how do I support a physician? Like think about a physician's assistance or even think about a physician. So we have enough data today at Biotricity where we can actually create an entire diagnostic study, fully analyze and tell you your diagnosis at the quality of probably the top 10% of cardiologists, electrophysiologists, and interventional cardiologists in the country. Now that's because there are customers, so we've learned from them, right? Now that is where you're in like really the, the, the black with FDA, right? So you're essentially going into an area where you're actually making a diagnosis. So that I think is going to come later on in time. Uh, and it's something certainly that we will have to look at as, you know, digital health companies, because you want to support physicians in that. So if a physician can get a baseline diagnosis, it allows them to see more patients, it allows them to act faster, and it's actually saving them time, but it's got to be reliable, they have to depend on it. So that's kind of how we think of AI, right? Well, how do we support the patient in a simple way? How do we support notifications for physicians and patients for awareness and potential problems or predictions and, and all that area? And then how do we move that to the quality and the level of, hey, this is actually a diagnosis. This is clinically like you need to act kind of a scenario. So those are the three areas that we think about it. And that third area is interesting because now you're not talking about uh, specifically a chatbot. You're actually thinking about recreating a virtual physician, right? So you're training them. So the way to think about the data is one is you're looking at zeros and ones. The other one is you're, you're thinking about a virtual physician who is actually reading the data visually. So it's a very different way of interpreting data, right? Well, thank you for breaking that down. It's a conundrum we're dealing with right now where we have technologies and sort of our portfolio, they've relied on sort of that good old fashioned, more machine learning just to simplify versus generative AI, right? Which everyone's learned about Dolly and ChatGPT, which are interesting. And I like the way you've sort of made that analogy. But one of the things we're talking about is particularly with the generative or conversational, it is much more about let me point this out and validate with human eyes and human diagnosis, right? Versus it's going to be a special day where you can exclusively rely on a machine to tell you a diagnosis that doesn't have human intervention. Who knows if we'll ever get to that, but maybe. Um, Two more questions. These are a little bit more personal and a little bit more to get to know you as a person who's changing lives. The first is one that I started at the beginning of the pandemic, and that's if you had one wish, what would it be? It can be anything personal, professional, world peace, whatever you want it to be. You know, I think uh, when we talk about wishes, um, I for me, it, it's going to go back to corporate, right? Because biotricity is, is kind of my baby and, and uh, I'm obviously an entrepreneur and I'm very much focused on it, right? And so, uh, you know, my wish would be is to be able to take my passion and like transfer it into uh, new new uh, personnel that are coming in, right? How do you create that passion, that culture, right? And make it electric because I think that that's what really drives innovation. And sometimes there are people that naturally gravitate to it, but it's very hard to kind of like, you know, instill it into individuals or, or like pass it on, right? So you'll find individuals that are very passionate about what they do. And then there are people that, you know, it'll take them time and there are people that will never get it. And, but, you know, they're functionally amazing and you need them and, and whatnot. So I really want to, you know, if there was a wish, I, I'd like to learn how to like instill passion. 
Well, I like that on a number of levels. First of all, it's unique, um, but it serves a number of different needs. It's pragmatic. You're serving the greater good because obviously if biotricity does well, then that makes people healthier, right? Um, you're making your company do well, and ultimately that helps you, and you're able to, you know, I think there's a goodness in inspiring people because we want people that work with us that love their job, that love what they do, and, you know, clearly as the CEO and founder, that's a big deal, and to get people to care as much as you do is no easy task. So thank you for being so unique in that answer. Uh, the last one is more of a fun one, sort of gratuitous, but it just gets at who you are as a person. You're on the proverbial deserted island. You can only take one album with you. Which album would you choose and why? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I would say, you know, I like electronic music. So I'd probably say the ATV album from uh, a while back. Uh, that was uh, a fantastic album. It was one that through grad school, through long drives, it was something that got me into the zone, got me into thinking. And I think on a deserted island, you need to be in the zone. So that's the album I would take. Well, it's a good choice. And I think you hit the nail on the head is dealing with a lot of tedium, right? And a lot of repetition, which you've had to on long drives or studying or, you know, whatever, um, that you need something that will get you through. So great choice. And I don't think we've had a lot of that from a suggestion perspective. So with that, I will wrap us up. This is Aaron Stroud. I'm the chief marketing officer and uh, host of the Real Chemistry podcast. And I've had the pleasure of spending some time with Wakas Al-Sadiq, who's the CEO and founder of Biotricity. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We post a new episode every Thursday. Visit realchemistry.com for more info.